Just one, uh, one announcement as we're turning to Psalm 119 this evening. One announcement related to the Easter flyers that are out in the uh, information counter, stacks of them that you can grab to invite folks to uh, Resurrection Sunday services next week to hear the gospel and become saved. And so uh, take advantage of kind of a final opportunity to grab a hold of those and invite family members and friends. We're studying on Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and we are currently in Psalm 119. If you don't have a Bible tonight, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. They have lots of Bibles. And if you just wave to them and get their attention, they'll get a Bible into your hands. And please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you this evening. Psalm 119, a beautiful psalm, a great song, a great ode by the psalmist, by the Holy Spirit, who indwelt him. This great psalm of praise, an ode to the beauty of the Word of God. And as we saw last week as we began the psalm, it is not only does the psalmist express his love for the Word of God in the psalm, I would be satisfied with that, but he does more than that. And he expresses the reason why he loves the Word of God. Now that's, you can prime a pump with a song of praise related to the Word of God, and that will prime the pump to a certain degree. But when the psalmist then begins to lay out all of the reasons for his love for the Word of God out of an experience between him and God related to the Word of God, how God used the Word in his life, now that's an altogether different quality of priming. And the reason is is because we recognize as we walk with the Lord that God is doing the same work here 3,000 years later, doing the same work in our relationship with God through his Word that he was doing uh, in the psalmist and his, the Lord's relationship with the psalmist. So the beauty of the psalm is that we recognize so much of our own relationship here in his description of his own relationship and the place that the Word of God took uh, in all of that. Let me just recap the reasons that we looked at last week for his love for the Word of God. He loved the Word of God because the Word of God produces a blessed life. Second, the Word of God produces a clean life. It cleanses us of impurity. Third, the Word of God provides us with a friendly voice during seasons of human rejection. And we need a friendly voice. We need to be reminded that somebody really does stick with us through thick and thin in life when not everyone else is faithful to do that. And then the Word of God revives and it strengthens us. It is the source of spiritual revival and strength in uh, the child of God in the hands of the Holy Spirit. And as we come now this evening to verse uh, 33, that next of the 22 sections that are based upon the Hebrew alphabet, we come uh, to the fact that the Word of God keeps us free from covetousness. Teach me, he said, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Now that's a commitment, isn't it? Give me understanding, and I shall keep your law. Indeed, I shall observe it with my whole heart. Make, my, make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. 
And then verses 36 and 37 for our specific meditation. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to covetousness. Turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things. This whole covetous, covetousness dominating the eye and revive me in your way. Establish your word in your servant who is devoted to fearing you. Turn away my reproach, which I dread, for your judgments are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me in your righteousness. And one of the, the effects of the Word of God and one of the great things that it does in our life as Christians is it really does keep us free of covetousness. And, and it does so by constantly reminding us of what is important in life. What's worth living for? Where fulfillment in, in life can be found? Where the meaning in life is found? You say, why is that so important? Maybe this section of the psalm is, is more important to us as Christians in the United States of America than maybe in any other part of the world today. We'll see maybe a little bit later tonight. We'll get to another section of the psalm that might speak to Christians who are in a completely different environment that we're in. And so we look at it and maybe there's kind of a collective yawn that gets yawned related to that and say, what application does that have to me while most of the Christians or a lot of Christians and much of the rest of the world, that's where they live every single day. But here this issue related to covetousness the context that we live in, we spoke about this a Sunday ago. You're, some of you are thinking, I hope he remembers. We spoke about it recently. It gives us a condensed version of this. But we live in a nation. We live in the Western world and in this country. We live in a place where there is this constant attempt to make us dissatisfied with the material things that we have. And it constantly feeds us the lie that if we just have a bigger or better or more of this or more of that, that we will find satisfaction and meaning in life. The bumper sticker, we've been seeing it for years, he who dies with the most toys wins. And uh, everything that uh, has a little bit of humor to it also has a significant truth to it. And that's a, a large truth related to our culture, even though the big economic bubble got burst about five years ago, it's still there. The machine that exists to make you and I think that we will be satisfied or happy with life or that our life will be meaningful on the basis of what we drive or what we live in or what we accumulate, that machine is as strong as ever. Its influence is strong as ever. It is as well-funded as it ever has uh, been. Covetousness is the ungodly desire for more. It is, the, it is not speaking about somebody looking and saying, I'm going to educate myself and get a degree, or I'm going, going to work hard on my job so I will be considered for a promotion where I work so that I can have a little bit more money to meet my needs or the needs of my family. That isn't necessarily covetousness. Covetousness is when the, this ungodly desire for more, it is the desire for more that does not come from God when that becomes the master passion of my life, the drive 
of my life. And again, it's the idea that fulfillment is found in the accumulating of, of material things. And so, and rather than what is the truth as the Word of God tells us, that true meaning and true purpose in life is found in serving God, knowing God, and then fulfilling His plan for our lives. Paul wrote and he said, having, uh, uh, he said, godliness with contentment is great gain. Uh, somebody says, well, what is the great aim in life? To have a relationship with God in which I'm being conformed into His image, I'm being faithful to His call upon my life, and then whatever He chooses to add to my life in order for me to be successful in those two things. That is a successful person. And that's the place that, that's where we are to be content. Godliness with contentment is great gain. That is the rich person in life. If we do not recognize, and who else is going to tell us? You think they're going to run commercials on this? On television? So, only God is going to speak to us related to covetousness. Who else is warning about covetousness? And so it is, it is the Lord who comes in, breaks through, and reminds us that life and meaning and purpose is not found in the places that we're being told in order that we do not invest all of our lives in those faulty places, then come to the end of our life and realize... I wasted my life in the accumulation of things under the message of the world. Jesus said, having food and raiment with these, be content. Wow. What is food and raiment? Food and clothing, shelter. Be content with the necessities in life being met. And then whatever God wants to add beyond that in His wisdom for our lives, then let Him add that because the great tendency in our lives apart from God's Word is to do what everybody else in the world does and that is we accumulate just enough stuff that it takes all of our time to take care of our stuff. And there's no time left for a relationship with God to go deeper and there certainly is no time left to serve Him. That means the voice of the world related to covetousness is dominating a life rather than the voice of the Holy Spirit through His Word. So it's a good thing to just stop tonight and look at our lives individually and say, is that where I am? Where I wish I had more time for devotional life with God. I wish that my relationship with God were closer than it is. I wish that I know what God has called me to do and where He wants me to spend His life for the, my life for the advancement of the kingdom, but I don't have any time to do that. It's a good thing to just stop and pull back. Sometimes a person can be in that place because you're just hustling two, three jobs, whatever, to keep the food on the table and all. I'm not talking about that kind of thing but talking about the kind of situation where we do have margins and of our own decision-making, now it takes all of our time to keep everything insured and all of the mailings that come in and then we've got to get this policy and we've got to maintain this and we've got to make sure that this thing doesn't leak over here and we've got to make sure that we do and over here and pretty all of our time is taken up. Well, we bought the lie. And so it's important the Word of God comes in and speaks to us about the fact that life is not really found there. 
I would never ever come to any individual Christian and tell them in the specifics of their life, you should have this, you shouldn't have that, or anything like that. What business of that is mine? I have enough trouble hearing the Lord for my own life related to those things. So I have no interest in defining that, okay, here's the list, you put it through, and then this and everything above and everything down and, and all of that. No interest in having, playing that, having that kind of a place in anybody's life. But it is good for us as Christians, as a different kind of people in the culture that we live in, to resist the indoctrination and to resist being put in the place that everybody else ultimately does where all we have time is to take care of the things that we have ended up buying that we really didn't need, but to allow God to define what is a need in our life. Sometimes we can have a tendency, I think, concerning covetousness to just think, yeah, those rich people, I'll tell you, that 1%, I'm going to send them a tape on this. I I hope for you as a Christian... that you are not falling prey to that 1% nonsense. And I don't say it politically. You and I don't know one single thing about another human being or their spirituality or the depth of their character on the basis of how much money they do or they do not have. This is a stupid lie. And it's a stupid way to divide a country and a people that need to be united. The tendency to look at this other group and say that that belongs to me, that doesn't belong to you. What kind of self-entitlement or arrogance makes me think, no matter how much money I don't have, do have or don't have, that what somebody else has or has worked for belongs to me? That's idiotic. That's a character flaw in me. If I believe that or I'm a sucker for that message, we don't know anything about a rich person by virtue of their balance of their bank account. And the fact of the matter is a poor person can be just as covetous as a rich person, just as dominated by the desire for more and the next thing and the next thing and live their life out in that place. It's something that plagues all of us. It's universal. And we need the Word of God to make us aware of that. Jesus said, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses. And I either believe that or I don't believe that. And you cannot make make a single statement that flies in the face of the machine of commercial Babylon that we are in the middle of than that statement of Jesus. That's a statement that's known as clarity. And it's very important that we believe that as Christians. Life does not consist in the abundance of the things that we possess Life consists, life is found in a relationship with God, an obedient relationship with God in which I am fulfilling His call upon my life and then Him adding to my life whatever He chooses to add to my life so that those two things advance. That's a truly rich and successful life. 
And, and so the indoctrination, Jesus wanting to make sure that we don't end up at the end of our life. And there are so many people who come to the end of their life and they say, I missed the whole thing. I'm a Christian. I'm on my way to heaven. But I bought the lie and I wasted my life. I wish I had believed what Jesus said about covetousness. And so this beautiful section of the psalm that uh, speaks of the Word of God's unique ability to keep us from uh, giving falling prey to covetousness. I like that there it says in verse 37, turn my eyes away from uh, looking at worthless things. That's another great verse to put on the television. And not just concerning the shows. As the other we saw earlier in the Psalms, I will put no wicked thing before my eyes. That was the first verse. This is the second verse. This is going to make me rich. I'm going to make plaques out of these two verses. But it's interesting that in this context, it speaks not so much being on guard related to the content of the shows, though we should always be that and more, but it's talking about covetousness, the advertisements. And not with all of the girls in their bikinis, or as my friend Joseph Perdome calls them, bikinis, He's French-Canadian. He doesn't know how to say bikinis with his accent. Or the obviously sexual content in the commercials and these things. But the wise Christian looks and understands that this is a conforming process. This is a manipulation. This is what is in front of my eyes during those commercials. And it doesn't mean that everything that's being advertised is wrong. But we are aware of it as Christians, that there's an indoctrination that is occurring. I think in verse 37 too, one of the things that it ministers to me is that the highest use of the gift of sight is the reading of God's Word. You cannot use the gift of sight in a holier, more productive, more beautiful way then when we open this book up and our eyes begin to move across the page and we study the Word of God. Verse 41. Let your mercies come also to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your Word. So shall I have an answer for him who reproaches me, for I trust in your Word. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for I have hoped in your ordinances, and so shall I keep your law continually forever and ever. And I will walk at liberty, for I seek your precepts. I will speak of your testimonies also before kings and will not be ashamed, and I will delight myself in your commandments, which I love. My hands also... I will lift up to your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. I want us to look specifically at verse 5. And I, will, for I, and I will walk at liberty, for I seek your precepts. The psalmist tells us 
that one of the reasons that he loves the Word of God is that obedience to the Word of God brings liberty. I'd venture to guess that if you ask the average person that knows nothing about the Bible and you were to ask them what that came into their mind at the mention of the Bible, the last thing that they would ever say is liberty. Wouldn't you agree with me? It would be one of the last things they say. Oh, the Bible, liberty, freedom, wow. It's much more likely that they would say, oh, the Bible, yes, the word that comes into my mind is bondage. And the average person would probably declare that liberation is found in being freed from the Bible, free from God's Word, free from God's commandments, which isn't true at all, but the opposite of that is true. I think it's a good question to ask ourselves, and, and as a skeptic might ask, and say, how in the world can freedom be found in a law? You can't find freedom in a law. How can you find freedom in a law? It's a contradictory statement. But you can find freedom in a law when that law is God's Word, and the psalmist knew it. People think today, and again, it's the shallowness of the culture that we live in. I saw an article. I hope I didn't mention it last week. I talked with somebody about it. It might have been you. But they had that article that the, um, the IQ of mankind is shrinking in our day. When you used to have pastors, I'll just use myself as a safe example. When you used to have people that pastored in churches, certainly in the Western world 100 years, 150 years ago, they knew Hebrew, they knew Greek, they knew Latin. They had read all of the classics in their original languages. I mean, they had an education that... You could get a Ph.D. and you haven't even begun to scratch the surface of the kind of education that people were getting in, in those days. And we think that we're smarter by virtue of the fact that we can access information faster than they can. But it doesn't mean it's in us, and it doesn't mean that it's impacted our lives, and it doesn't mean that it has made us deep and strong people. So people's intellects, some speculate, now as a whole, we are losing ground worldwide on, on that particular front. People think that liberty, because people don't think anymore, it's a very emotional culture now. People decide on the basis of emotion. So often people think that liberty is found in being able to do whatever I want without any kind of limitation of any kind. That's true liberty. <laughs> the problem is, is inevitably, it doesn't work. It's, it's a great speech and, and it looks good in print, but in practice all it ever does is lead to bondage. Bondage to sin, bondage to my selfishness, uh, bondage to lusts, all of which is slavery. And the Bible teaches that God has created us and He knows the boundaries that we need to stay within in order to stay safe. And His Word tells us what those boundaries are. I remember reading a fascinating article years ago and it was uh, speaking about the fact that there was this elementary school in America and the school was set off of a very busy road, the buildings themselves. But the property went all the way up to the road itself. 
And they went on about their business for years and years and years and decades, whatever. This is where the school is. It's a busy road. So what? And one day they got a hold of enough funds and they decided because of the busyness of the road, we ought to do something that makes the uh, students a little more safe. And so they put a cyclone fence up around the entire perimeter of the church property, all the way down to a fence along that road, all the way around the property. The very first day after that fence was erected, the children who had formerly clustered during recesses solely around the buildings now went all the way down to the property by the road in order to play and have fun during the recess. Once they knew the boundary, once they had it defined for them what boundary was safe, they became liberated. They became freed from their fear. And it's the same way for us as adults. When God takes and He sets these limitations and these parameters upon our life, far from producing some kind of bondage in our life, it sets us free in a way that we would never have otherwise discovered. We could never otherwise know apart from His revelation. God's commandments, God's boundaries, they keep us from being addicted to drugs and alcohol. They keep us from being coming sexually immoral and contracting sexually transmitted diseases. As we've seen, it keeps us from the bondage of covetousness and the accompanying debt that comes with covetousness. It keeps us from the bondage of anger and violence and the prison sentence that so often goes with all of that. It keeps us from the bondage of gambling and stealing and lying and gossip. And it keeps us free from the bondage of selfishness. And the smallest prison in the whole wide world is right inside of everybody's skin. And the selfishness that produces the divorces and the broken families and the broken relationships and all of the bitterness that comes with it. Disobedience to God's Word always reduces results rather in bondage and in slavery. And that's why Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he who commits sin is a slave to sin. There is no freedom in committing sin. Again, you want to take one statement that flies in the face, from the mouth of Jesus, flies in the face of the nonsense that people are doctrinated with every single day. You could hardly find a, a better one. And he says it in just a dozen or so words. Verily, verily, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. I think about Adam and Eve, and even specifically in that ancient Garden of Eden where the devil came to Eve and he was successful in convincing her that true liberty was, is found apart from obedience to God's commandment. And I'll tell you, he's been spouting that same message ever since, but it's a lie. He said to the woman, you will surely not die, for the Lord knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Man, he, you are missing out on everything by obeying God. And how he uses the same message, even today within the culture. Jesus agreed with the psalmist, John chapter 8, 
Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, he said, Abide in my word, and if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth. And the truth will put you in a bondage like you never could believe. And the truth will set you free. I'm not going to ask for an amen. But I want an amen in our hearts. Think about how free the Lord has set us by His standard and His word. By putting restrictions on the wrong things in our life, how it has led us out into a life of freedom and a life of blessing. And I want anybody that's here tonight that is in any kind of bondage where your life is one of bondage and addiction, you wonder if there's any hope for you at all, and there is hope, and the hope is found in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ and then going deep, deep, deep into God's Word. And God will set you free. And He is able to do it and He loves to do it. Think about the bondage. Just look at our culture. This place is crazy. We're not just talking about crime. Look at the bondage we expose our kids to. Look at what children and young people have access to in this culture. Because we're afraid that if we put a restriction on it, somehow this person over here isn't going to be able to make all of the money that they want to make in taking away innocence from young people or children. And so you see these people that are in bondage. They're in bondage. Their life course is already set in middle school. They have already, some of us didn't discover our life-dominating sin, the thing, one, two, three sins that was going to put us in a headlock and put us into bondage for life. We didn't discover those sins till we were in our 20s. But by then we had enough emotional and mental maturity to be able to begin to move against that kind of thing. What are you going to do when you're 10, 11, 12 years old and you are already a victim of what God knows and the world and the devil knows is the thing that will put you into bondage for the rest of your life? And so there's never a, a time where it's more important for people to know in the upside-down way that this world is, that there is freedom for everyone, but that freedom is found in Jesus and in an obedient relationship to Him, which He will give us the will to do and the power to do and to live. Notice in verse 49, Remember the word of your servant upon which you have caused me to hope. This is my comfort and my affliction, for your word has given me life. The proud have me in great derision, yet I do not turn aside from your law. I remembered your judgments of old, O Lord, and have comforted myself. 
Indignation has taken hold of me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and I keep your law. This has become mine because I kept your precepts. And I want you to notice in verse 49 and verse 50, the psalmist tells us that God's word is a source of hope and comfort in affliction and in trial and in persecution. There are times, and every one of us, virtually every one of us will hit them, but one of this kind of a time, maybe even multiple times in our lives, when no word from man can give us any comfort and give us any hope. You've experienced it where some trial comes into your life, some difficulty, some piece of news that you've just got to grab a chair and sit down because you don't trust your legs to stay steady underneath you. And when that kind of a thing happens in life, you realize there is nothing that another human being can say to me that will bring comfort to me, true comfort, or that can bring hope to me in this situation. Maybe you haven't experienced it quite that way, but maybe you've experienced it from the other side of things, where someone you love or someone you know has received some kind of devastating news or something has come up in their life, and here you are, you're about to pick up the phone and call them, or you're about to go over to their house to see them, and you're thinking to yourself as a Christian, Lord, what in the world can I ever say to them in the light of this news? I have nothing that I can say to comfort them and to reintroduce hope into their life. And there are those times when we have to hear from God or we will lose all hope in life. And where can we turn to at times like that? Where can we turn to for hope like that? Only the Word of God because only He can speak into our lives and only He can keep hope alive at times like that and He does it through His Word. And again, as we spoke about a little bit last week, how wonderful to sit down at times like that where you're just absolutely stunned by whatever has happened. And you open up the Bible and you begin to read and you 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 you keep on reading. How long do you read at a time like that? Until you experience God's comfort and until He rebirths hope in your life. That's why it's good, I think, related to a devotional life to have a certain amount of time that is devoted to begin the day worshiping the Lord and reading His Word and in prayer. But then we hit certain periods in our life where that half hour, that hour, whatever it might be, isn't sufficient. How long does my devotional life need to be on a morning like this? It needs to take as long as is necessary for me to hear God's voice of comfort through His Word in my situation and for hope to be rebirthed back into my life and to read the Word of God 
until it does exactly that, until, like the psalmist declares there in verse 54, we take one of God's promises and we make it our song in the situation. Think about how many of you in this room right now, half of your favorite verses in the Bible have been birthed out of that kind of a season. You say, I love my family. I love my church family. I love my friends. They all tried. They sent me the most beautiful cards. They said the most beautiful things to me. But none of it could make a dent in my heart in terms of the need that I had in my life and all of this. And only the Word of God did that. And then whatever God, whatever verse or passage God chooses to take out of the 66 books that make up this Bible to then give us the comfort that we need and then to give us the hope that we need, how it is that for the rest of our lives that becomes one of our favorite verses, one of our greatest songs. And sometimes it's kind of hard because you'll hear somebody like me who'll get up and they'll open up and you'll hear a pastor read your passage, the one that God got you through that situation with, and then someone like me didn't receive that verse in that kind of a way. It doesn't have even remotely that kind of depth in my life yet. And you think to yourself, oh, I wish I could get up there and tell everyone my story about what I was facing and how God used this passage in my life and what he spoke to me and what it did in me. If that ever happens, don't come up here and try and take over the pulpit. But just let me know so I can call on you. If we could actually get all of that coordinated, it would be wonderful. But I think about how some of the, our favorite places in the Bible are born out of this kind of an experience. You say, well, what in the wor- world could ever make going through that kind of an experience worth it? I don't know. But I do know one of the things that helps make it worth it is the fact that that passage has now become my favorite. I have a history with God in those three verses that will go on forever and ever because the two things that are eternal in this world are human lives and the Word of God. God entrusts a great richness to us when He entrusts that kind of a thing to us. I think about where would we be without the Word of God at those kind of times that we face in life. Sometimes I'm going to visit someone at a hospital, and I'll walk through the hospitals. God bless all of you that work in hospitals. And I'm really amazed, and I know that I know somebody is, stays on the ball in all of this, but the hospitals that I have gone to, not only in this community, but beyond it, and... How people, so many of them don't know the Lord, but how people stay in that place of compassion, of being a servant, 
I mean, it's an amazing environment. And, of course, as a Christian, the impact is even greater. I mean, you get in the hospital, and I, even if they're dealing with an ingrown toenail, you still got to put that dumb gown on. When you're in a hospital, you are vulnerable. Here's a guy over here. He's worth $100 million. $90 million of it should be mine. Or so I'm told. So he's worth $100 million, and he's right over here. Here I am over in the bed right over there, right next to him, or maybe you are. We don't have two quarters to rub together. We got the same gown on. He's got to wrap that little thing right around back here when he goes to the bathroom just like we have to when we're making our way. It's a terribly vulnerable Vulnerable place to be. And when somebody cares in an environment like that, God knows how to make a lot of that in a child of God. But sometimes I walk past those rooms. You say, where was he going? I didn't know for a moment, but we're back. (laughs) And I think to myself, how in the world do these people get by? Where do they get find hope and comfort in the middle of all of the things that I know they have to be facing in an environment like this. And the fact of the matter is they don't have hope and they don't have comfort. I don't know how people make it without the promises of God. I've become so dependent upon them myself. Very often when I pray with somebody that's in the middle of a great crisis in their life, I'll pray for the Lord to just personally speak to them something from His Word that they need to hear. And I'll say something like this, Lord, we thank You so much for all of the voices of these medical professionals, all of their skills and abilities. We thank You, Lord, for the voices of all of the people who love us most in life and all that they have said to us. We appreciate it, Lord. But none of that can make a dent in terms of producing true comfort and hope. The only place we're going to receive that, Lord, is something from your word, to hear something from your throne. And so, Lord, would you bring a scripture to the remembrance of this person, the right scripture that comes right from your throne to their situation that will reinfuse hope and produce comfort within their hearts. And that's the desire of my heart in line with the psalmist, knowing that the Word of God alone can produce that kind of thing, the voice of God. And maybe there's one or two of us here tonight And you've lost hope in life, some rejection, some affliction, some diagnosis, some whatever it might be, and you're looking for a reason to hope in life. I'll tell you, you're not alone. I think of many of us in this room, myself included. We came to the Lord not because we were destitute, not because we ran out of money, 
not because we didn't have any material things and we were living on the street or not because we were in some kind of a, a, a dominating bondage to one or two, three sins in our life. But we came to know the Lord because we knew we were living life without hope. And everybody needs to have hope in life. And only God can produce a hope in life that is greater than all of the things in life that would take our hope away from us. And he will do that. We need this thing called hope. And God gives it, and he loves to give it. And if you're not a Christian this evening, he will love to bring that hope into your life as you surrender your life to the Lord Jesus tonight. How often he uses this absence of hope to bring a person to him. Absence of meaning and purpose in life where we look and say, that's what happened to me. Most of you are familiar with my story a little bit. But I had, we had this house and and it was, it was an upgrade from the first house that we had. We had two cars. They were both paid off. One child, another child on the way. We had fixed up the second house. And I had a great job. I had good seniority even and had favor on the job. I mean, everything was onward and upward. But I was as empty as could be. And I didn't have hope in, the, in life. And I remember telling Karen, I, tell you, I said to Karen, I said, if I haven't found meaning and purpose in these things that I already have, then I know I'm not going to find meaning and purpose and hope in simply upgrading them to the next best car and the next best house and the next best position at the phone company and the next best and the next best and the next best. We needed hope in order to live. And God gives that So we'll stop here tonight and we'll pick it up uh, next time in verses 57 through 64. But we'll ask the worship team to come forward now.